Welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. We have a wonderful privilege today in that we have Peter Francho, the Comptroller of the State of Maryland on our show. Welcome to the show, Comptroller Francho. Uh, Bob, it's Peter. Because, Peter, uh, very I'm well. reminded by my wife, you know, this morning she said, hey, you're so important. Don't forget to take the trash out. It's trash day. So I was wrestling the trash cans there, but... Seriously, call me, Peter, and your listeners can, uh, I'm going to give them my cell phone number later on in the show so that people feel they can always uh, connect with me if they need to. That's a wonderful thing. I wish everyone who had appeared on this show had had shown a similar inclination. You'd be amazed at the things I learn because it's like you and your professional activities. People are really smart and they have eyes and ears. So I benefit from being connected to ordinary folks, I guess. You also have a unique constituency. There's a tendency in the state to know there's a governor and there's a lieutenant governor, but people don't realize what your role is and how you attained it. Could you give us a little discussion of what the comptroller does and how you got there? Well, the comptroller in Maryland is a statewide elected position. In many states, it's an appointed position by the governor. In our state, where I'm independently elected, I've been controller 14 years. I really am kind of an accidental controller because I've been in the legislature from Montgomery County as a delegate for 20 years and desperately needed to get out of that because, you know, it's kind of addictive in the sense that people are always treating you very nicely. But I was doing the same old, same old. So I basically decided to get out of the legislature, not by retiring, but by running against William Donald Schaefer, the then incumbent controller. And my theory was that, well, I'd run a presentable race and lose to this iconic Babe Ruth of Maryland politics. But the longer I got into the race, the better I did. And then I became governor. I, you know, Janet Owens got in from Anne Arundel County and, and William Donald Schaefer, the incumbent. They both lost. And I have been the comptroller since then. I am the chief tax administrator. We process 3.2 million tax returns a year. No such thing as a Republican tax return or a Democratic tax return. I tell our staff, respect the taxpayer, respond to the taxpayer, get results for the taxpayer. We give out annually, we're right in the start of our tax season, $3 billion in tax refunds to these. uh, It's a big operation. We're already, since February 12th, when we opened up uh, the tax season, we're now up almost to a million returns and 800,000 refunds that we've sent out. We average 2.5 business days upon receiving an electronically filed return, putting your money back in your bank account. So we put a lot of our reputation around customer service. We answer 800,000 phone calls a year. We keep it less than a minute before you get a friendly voice on the phone that can help you. And we pride ourselves on that kind of accessibility. I mentioned my cell phone number. People can call me at 301, area code 332-1961 and leave a voicemail or text if there's something our agency has fallen short on. But it's a great job. It's kind of a sleepy bureaucracy when I first got elected. And now uh, I'm sure there'll be lots of people running for my seat because I've announced that I'm not going to run for re-election to comptroller. And 
that opens up a statewide position, which has been, well, we made it a really fun job because we're very visible on, for example, the Board of Public Works, where we don't just, you know, collect your tax revenue. We vote with the governor and the treasurer on the, you know, billions and billions of dollars of state procurement contracts. And that's kind of action central every two weeks and provides me with a ability to pontificate on issues well beyond just the taxes. So it's a great job. If anybody wants to run for it, it's open. There are two people that are announced and there'll be probably a half dozen more and, you know, recommended highly to people. So uh, you don't have any aspiration to surpass Louis Goldstein for his tenure there? No, Louis was uh, controller for 40 years. So I will have been 16 years at the end of this term. That's enough for me. And honestly, I think you know, we've created this kind of juggernaut of an agency. We also have upgraded the infrastructure, which allows us to do this kind of uh, customer service. For example, we just processed the governor and the legislature's leaf checks. These were, you know, 450,000 either checks or direct payments into people's bank accounts. We did it in three business days. Wow. And, And the first day we had a portal set up, which, you know, every time a portal set up, Famously, they tend to crash. Well, we had 405,000 people visit it and, uh, right at the start, and it you know, didn't crash. So we're kind of known for being able to do things, and I'm perfectly happy to hand over the agency. We also do a lot of these uh, processes without the normal fraud. You may have heard that there's been enormous fraud in the unemployment insurance checks, and that's a real concern to me. It's not our agency. But we have a nationally known fraud detection unit in the comptroller's office, which allows us to do a lot of speedy transactions that customers really like, but we're able to do it without opening ourselves up in the general treasury up to enormous fraud, which other states suffer from. And it's all algorithms and tests and, you know, it's done electronically. So I don't mean to take credit personally, but we invested in the technology and the infrastructure just for this kind of occasion. It sounds as though you have effectively taken the comptroller's office into the modern age under your administration. Well, it's the employees that really have, but I take some credit for it because instead of arriving as a kind of accidental comptroller, having beaten William Donald Schaefer, the two-time governor, four-time mayor of Baltimore City, two-term incumbent comptroller, so everyone's shock and surprise, I won. I was surprised. Yeah. So, you know, the advice I got from people like yourself and others was don't go in and act like a big shot and go in and make sure the employees and the especially the division directors, have the feeling that you have their back and are going to get the resources they need to do to do their job. And I did that for six months, and it really paid off. It was a great management suggestion. And afterwards, I said, okay, now we're going to do this big customer service juggernaut. We're going to do this big fraud detection uh, national recognized model. We're going to, as you said, modernize the rather uh, backroom you know, operation that we have here. We're going to really invest. And for example, we're right now implementing a new $160 million data system. But it's all part of that, getting the employees to buy in to, we're going to do something special. And you're right, whoever is the new comptroller is going to inherit a uh, Maserati. It's a pretty exciting vehicle. And, you know, it's not, I don't mean to overstate 
my role. But if it hadn't worked, if the whole system was screwed up, like the unemployment system is, or the vaccine rollout is, for example, I'd be the person that they were complaining about. And so it's all good. I, it's I a, think, think a, vaccine rollout might have gone better if it had been under your auspices. Well, the Baltimore Sun suggested that and also the unemployment checks, but our employees are uh, not for hire. We got our, enough complexities to deal with on our own. But yeah, no, the thought is out there that there should be a little more, both at the county level and the state level, more responsiveness to people and more understanding that they're incredibly frustrated because of the pandemic. And we simply can't give them a rabbit hole of email addresses to go and pursue. You have to have a live person help them. And in my opinion, that removes 90% of the anger that people feel if they're at least talking to someone. And then generally, their problems uh, sometimes can be uh, addressed right on the spot. So one of the things that has, I've followed your candidacy for a long time, having been a long time Montgomery County resident, and you have a pretty intriguing mix of working in the House of Delegates, working in Congress with, I think, among others, Ed Markey from Massachusetts. And I do think you have a pretty diverse base of experience. And I wonder if you could talk about how that informs what you do presently as comptroller and what you think it would do to help you as governor of our state. Well, it all goes back to the Army because I was in college. I dropped out to work for Gene McCarthy's presidential race because he was against the Vietnam War. And I lost my student deferment. I didn't realize it. I was how clueless I was, but I got drafted. And that proved to be a real game changer for me because I didn't like basic training and I didn't like the Army very much, but I did my duty, A, and B, they gave me a real education as far as the school of hard knocks and, you know, allowed, knocked the rough edges off me. And, and I had a little bit more of a serious approach to things when I got out and I got involved in a lot of not-for-profit work. And that led to law school and law school led to me down to Washington. And I met then Congressman Markey, now Senator Markey. And I started on a uh, kind of an involvement in the political scene. And I left Ed Markey's office, ran for the legislature, and served 20 years in the legislature. And now you know, I'm lucky enough to be, uh, well, not lucky enough, fortunate enough to be comptroller. And yeah, I'm gonna, it's time for me to move on. And I'm rolling the dice. And if I'm fortunate to be governor, I'm going to do, you know, I keep emphasizing to people, it's not the fact that you have good ideas. It's the fact that you can actually improve things that is really matters to people. And so, yeah, I would love to be as eloquent as some of the politicians that are out there, but I'm going to make certain pledges to the state and I'm going to follow through. And uh, I've told them in the first six months, I'm going to fix every pothole in the state, state roads, pick up the trash along state roads, which is ubiquitous right now. And I'm going to have every state agency answer the phone within 60 seconds. And they say, oh, well, that just sounds like the same old promises. No, I did it already with the comptroller's office. And it requires testing and retesting. We don't answer 800,000 phone calls just because I think it's a good idea. No, we have to set up remote call centers in Hagerstown and Salisbury on the shore. We have to train people. They, we have to have the technology. You know, it's a, you have to plan and prepare. So I'm going really to the 
citizens of the state, I guess, and say, look, this is kind of the culmination of my entire professional career, working in politics, but not being a standard Democrat who wants you to vote for him or her because they're spending a lot of your money on something like education that you really value. I value education a lot too, but I'd like to improve it perhaps in an affordable way where we keep our fiscal house in order and we don't get way out in front of ourselves with promises about funding. And then we have to do tax increases. And then all of a sudden we're in a much more less stable position uh, fiscally. So I view myself as someone that can, like an independent Democrat, not do necessarily what the Republicans want me to do, not do necessarily what the Democratic bosses tell me to do. I actually can improve things. And I'm kind of excited about that because I don't see a whole lot of politicians out there saying, I want you to judge me not by the money I'm spending, but by the results. Do you actually, are you happier? Are your kids in better schools? Do you have a better job? Is the environment cleaner? Do you have access to healthcare in a 10 minute walk from where you live or a 10 minute car ride to high quality, affordable health clinics? I mean, is your life better? So we'll see. I'm a little bit on the older side, Bob. So uh, you don't seem that way to me. Yeah, but I hope to touch a nerve among the public, wherever they are on the spectrum, party or ideologically, that we actually can, you know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We can have that for everybody. And uh, it's not going to happen immediately. And you've got to deal with the private sector, free enterprise capitalist system that we have. It's quirky. It has flaws, but it's a game changer as far as a uh, economic system that can produce jobs and financial independence and give all of our citizens uh, opportunities to live lives that are A, where they're healthy, B, where they're happy, and C, where they're uh, able to be uh, fiscally independent. So I'm, you know, interested in getting out having, and I don't have any opponents yet. So I'm interested in, uh, please, let's get some opponents. I'm happy to pay their filing fees and let's have a debate about the future of the state. So thank you for, uh, I don't, I'm not even sure what you asked, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, you have an impressive longtime resume with a lot of different informational inputs. You know, you've got national, you've got local, you've got statewide and that makes you a formidable candidate in my estimation. And what I'd say also, I've always been intrigued by the Board of Public Works. And I don't think people really understand how important it is in the state of Maryland, but aside from working on giant projects, which I will touch on momentarily, it also means you are compelled when Governor Hogan is a Republican to work across the aisle with Republicans, which is something that seems anathema to the Democratic Party in Maryland presently. Well, I mentioned that I'm an independent Democrat. And when my party comes to me and says, look, you have an important role on the Board of Public Works and you meet every two weeks with Governor Hogan and you've got to beat him up. You've got to accuse him of doing bad things because you're a Democrat. He's a Republican. No, thank you very much. I don't have to do what you are asking me to do. I'm proud to be a Democrat, but I'm not going to get involved in that, specifically for the reason you said. It's a three-member board. The treasurer is elected by the legislature. The governor is independently elected. I'm independently elected. 
we vote on average on $440 million every two weeks in state contracts. And it's an important position for, and, and a unique three-member panel. No other state has anything like the Board of Public Works. I mean, we're like, when you put up a map of the U.S., we're the only state that would be colored in. What's different about it? You need two votes for every contract, two out of three. Most of them are approved three to nothing because they're well vetted. But uh, if you don't have two votes, it's not going to get approved. And we're not talking authorization. We're talking actual appropriation of spending of the money. So, yeah, it is important that, A, we have collegial relationships, which I do, with both Treasurer Cop and uh, Governor Hogan. But, you know, it's a fascinating board for uh, folks that are not familiar with it. And there's been a big book written by, by Wilmer or something, Judge Wilmer. And uh, that's a little dense, but there is a video that's been done by a young high school student, a senior down here in Montgomery County. His name is Dav King, I think, D-A-V-K-I-N-G. He's done a series of YouTube 12-minute videos on Maryland's Comptroller's Office, which, which is why I know of it. But he did one on the Board of Public Works, and your listeners should go to uh, Alan, maybe uh, Alan Brody's on the line for my staff. He can uh, send you or send Chris the uh, whatever the YouTube URL is, because I tell you, you look at these five videos done by this high school senior, I learn things from watching them. And the one on the Board of Public Works is particularly informative. Sounds like he's going to be an impending guest for me. He would be fabulous. He's, you know, a classic high school senior. He's, you know, stuttering and, you know, kind of gee whiz and gosh and all this stuff. But the stuff he puts out and the charts that he has, he's the one who puts up after the Board of Public Works, he explains everything. And he says, let me tell you how unique the Board of Public Works is. I'm going to show you a picture of the uh, United States of America and color in the states that have a Board of Public Works. And there we were, the only red blotch. Nobody else has one. It's, I don't so know. So how, how, how did it originate? I think it originated from a bankruptcy that the state went through back in the days when we were buying railroad bonds. And I think back in 1861, the treasurer bankrupted the state by making some decisions unilaterally on financial investments. And as a result, they did a constitutional amendment where I am in charge of the general superintendents of the state's finances, whatever the hell that means. So out of that came the Board of Public Works. We're granted authority, not by the constitution, but by the statutes. But the legislature over the decades has basically said, this is one of the very few bodies that actually functions like rational adult should function. And so they gave it more and more power. They also gave it, for example, the power to, when the legislature is not in session, the Board of Public Works can reduce any state agency's budget by 25% by a simple two-person vote. Don't even need three votes. And that is something the rating agencies in New York, when we go for our debt ratings, have traditionally based their AAA bond rating. They give a AAA bond rating to Maryland, not because we're well-managed fiscally, but because they see we have a very ready appetite for raising taxes, which is nice. But specifically, it's the Board of Public Works' ability to make cuts in real time 
that impresses them. For example, in last summer, when the pandemic was upon us, we reduced the spending by a half a billion dollars. And boy, the rating agencies just fall all over themselves on that because they say, thank God you don't have to wait and then do it prospectively. You can actually, bam, do it. And they've given the statutory power for us to do that. I suppose they could get mad and take it away, but it works so well that it's probably there forever. I think people, unless their particular ox is being gored by the Board of Public Works, think it's a great thing and a unique thing that Maryland should be proud of. Yes, it just isn't completely well understood, which is understandable because it deals with these big contracts. It is action central, though, when we're not meeting remotely, but we're meeting in person. There literally hundreds of people are standing trying to get in, most of them lobbyists and uh, lawyers petitioning for their- Good crowd. Good crowd. Yeah, no, it's a very, you know, everybody is on their best behavior, that's for sure, because there's just, as I said, on average, $400 million in contracts at every meeting. Wow. So we don't have a vast amount of time, so I'd like to just throw out some of what I think Marylanders perceive as significant public works projects, which is to say things like the red line up in Baltimore, the purple line here in the D.C. suburbs, the 270 expansion, 495 expansion, and the Bay Bridge. And I'd ask, are all of those things that are presently being discussed at the Board of Public Works And if so, what are your thoughts about their processes? Well, the Purple Line is front and center. That's a very, very important mass transit train in Prince George's and Montgomery County. Sure. And it's so-called P3, which is public-private partnerships. We're using private sector capital and paying them back through revenues. That's run into some choppy water, but it's been put back on a sound course because the devil's in the details on these P3 agreements. And We lost the general contractor on the Purple Line, and that was a setback, but I believe they've put it back together again. And that project, which is 40% done, will be completed a little bit late. The 270 American Legion Bridge project has been reduced and is no longer the the Beltway Widening Project. It is now just the American Legion and 270 up to the ICC. And... That's turned a you know twelve billion dollar public private partnership into a two billion dollar project, which is much more handleable. It's paid using private sector capital and refunding repaying them over a long period of time through toll revenue. So that's still in the planning stages. It'll be voted on by the Board of Public Works in April. Okay. So stay tuned on that one. The red line was a project a kind of the mirror image of the Purple Line, but up in Baltimore. Sure. They received federal funding. The governor decided not to go forward. That may reappear as a priority for the Biden administration. Once they finish the current stimulus plan, which they hope to get through, the next uh, reconciliation bill in the uh, enormous amounts of money will be for infrastructure. And the red line may reappear in that. So 495 improvement in Montgomery and Prince George's County, it sounds as though from what you said, it's been separated from the 270 American Legion Bridge. Where does that stand? And what are your thoughts about that? I happen to think that the jury's out on the Beltway widening. I think it can be, you know, I would like to see it be done 
on a much more orderly basis. And that's why I'm pleased. And I think the reason that it's been reduced from the original project to a much smaller one is because they didn't have the second vote. I'm the second vote because the treasurer is opposed to it, period. So it's, I think, been whittled down to something which is not phase one followed by phase two, phase three. It's phase one, period. We're going to see how it works. We need a new bridge. No question. 270, 270 and the, the ICC already is a toll road. So it would provide a big reduction in the congestion, we think, on traffic coming south from Baltimore on 95, could take the ICC over to the 270 and go down a, on a toll lane basis and pay an extra $20 to get much more quickly over the American Legion Bridge. My understanding when that's presented to us in April will be that they have studies to show that in addition to that, the free lanes, the non-toll lanes will have congestion significantly reduced. And we need that because it's a real choke point. The other part, east of 270 on 495 the, in Montgomery and Prince George's part of the Beltways will not be considered and are not going to be considered for five or six years. And I think what will happen is it will essentially see how this smaller slice works. And only then will there be any kind of examination of something for Prince George's and Montgomery, because that's very controversial. It requires oh, yeah. some parkland and some residences and eminent domain. And there's a big hue and cry and uproar over there. So understandably, I think it might never, you know, it's, it's one of those ideas that may disappear. I mean, between the ICC and the Purple Line, one hopes that, you know, that will relieve some of the east-west pressure through Montgomery and Prince George's County, ultimately, and make it far less necessary to do anything with the Beltway. Yes. And even then, what we can do with the Beltway is much more kind of moderate, such as using the shoulders, having reversible lanes, the purple line you mentioned could be an alternative east-west route. So yeah, I tell people who originally were very opposed to the Beltway widening project, as it's called, I said, you're now opposing something that does not exist and is not being studied. That will be popular in Montgomery County. And it's not going to go anywhere. Sure. Well, yeah, the problem is that once an activist, always an activist. So nobody believes you when you, when you say <laughs> there isn't phase two and phase three, but that's okay. I think we'll learn quite a bit through experience. And the P3 for the purple line that we had to pay $250 million to get out of, because right. the uh, lead contractor, Fluor, F-L-U-O-R, it's a big Texas company. Well, they're off the record. They're getting investigated for poor procurement practices where they lowball state contracts and then get in and ask for the increases. They asked for a big increase and we said, no, that's not fair. And they walked. And so that's why we have the current kerfluffle. And we had to, because of you lawyers, I hate to say that because I'm a lawyer myself, but we ended up paying them a $250 million exit fee. And that was because we didn't negotiate the P3 correctly. We've learned from that. The state has learned, and the P3 for American Legion Bridge is going to be much tighter, and I think we'll be more successful. But the key thing is we'll be able to see whether there's any relief of traffic congestion and any real uproar over the tolls. And, you know, we'll be able to, it, without completely 
turning the area on its head, we're going to be able to test a properly drafted P3, and we'll see how it goes. I didn't get you on the Bay Bridge, and I know I've run over my time. Do you have any thoughts about the new Bay Bridge between the Eastern and Western Shore? We're going to do a new Bay Bridge. And the reason why this American Legion Bridge P3 is so important, we can't possibly do another Bay Bridge without a P3. The private sector is the only entity that has the capital that would permit that. So, yeah, a lot of what we're doing with experimenting with P3s right now is getting ready for that massive project. I'd very much like to thank you, Peter, for coming on the show. I'd like to think as things heat up in the campaign, we will get you and whoever your adversaries end up being on to really talk about the heart of the issues. Thank you so much. Bob, thank you very much. And best to uh, Chris and your organization. And Alan Brody, of course, is listened in on this and is a very valuable member of my staff. So thanks for everything you represent. And thanks for your recognition and awards that you have received for pro bono. People don't associate that with the legal practice all the time. So I do. Pro bono. That's good. Well, you're very kind. This is Bob Clark and Everyday Law. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.